We've got a lengthy text this morning. Let me read it for us, and then I'll set this up for you. We're in chapter 2 of Titus, and we're going to do the majority of chapter 2 today. We're going to do verses 1 through 10. It's, it's, it's a unit together. We could break this apart, but I believe that we'll see the overall flow of this when we take these verses together. So let me read these 10 verses for you and ask you to read along on the screen or in a copy of God's Word that you might have. Paul starts, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Friends, in Titus 2, we get this beautiful picture of what church should be. We get this beautiful picture of what church should be. And, and recognize that Paul writes, and he's describing characteristics. He's calling Titus to teach, to ask others to teach, and, and largely it is to five different groups. He hits older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and he hits slaves, which are a subgroup decidedly set apart from the rest. Now, what is missing in this is he's not writing just to a group of young people. If you've got a church of all 20 and 30-somethings or maybe 40-somethings that are acting like 30-somethings or 50-somethings that are having a midlife crisis that are acting like 30-somethings, thinking themselves to be acting like 20-somethings, you've got a church that's young. It's young, and, and churches that are young tend to manifest themselves in the same kinds of problems over and over again. They think that they have all of the answers to life sorted out. They think, man, I've got this done. I went to college, all six and a half years of it. They say, I watched Friends in the 90s. I know exactly how to have interpersonal relationships. They say, I've got all of this work done. In fact, I don't, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I've got all of this stuff solved. That's what it's like to have a church with all young people. All this zeal and very little wisdom. You get a church nothing but older people. You got aches and pains galore. You got aches and pains galore. You have a tremendous amount of wisdom and there seems to be some competition for whose wisdom is the wisdom that should be the chief defining line of everybody, but everybody's tired, everybody's gone through life and nobody wants to push hard into the finish line. They just want the finish line. A church of primarily just older people infinitely wise but it doesn't have the zeal or the energy to finish the race and you put all these people together you put older people and younger people together and this is what the temptation is you have two churches in one 
You find the older people, they want to stay on this side, and they say, look, I want church done this way. I want it to go back to the way that it was when I was younger. It never should have changed, and this is where I want church. Then you've got the younger people on this side, and they say, you're old, you're stuck in the mud, you need to join us over here. Never the two shall mix. And they're both wrong. They're absolutely both wrong. You see, they're both competing for what they think is the right answer, but they're neglecting the call of Scripture to be intimately intertwined in each other's lives. I'll tell you, this is one of the great things that we've seen uh, as a part of our life group this past year. When, when life group started, admittedly, this was my fault. I thought that these things would work better if they were according to life situation. And so we wanted 30-somethings together. We wanted 20-somethings together. We wanted singles together. We wanted to separate them because I thought, in my mind, if you have more in common with people, you're more apt to spend time with them, right? It makes sense. You guys are all shaking your head like you knew I was wrong. My question would be to you then, where were you when I was deciding these things? I talked to a number of you, and you all nodded along. Now you're all on the other side. And so we went through our fall semester largely like that. In the spring, our our group began to change. We began to to split generationally. We had a number of of more seasoned people join our group. Radically changed and transformed our group. The wisdom the younger people in the group were able to, to imbibe, to take in from the older people in the group was amazing. It was so refreshing to get together week after week, discuss the sermon, and hear how God had spoken across the generations and was bringing all people to understand and to worship him. That is church done well. That is church done well. Let's walk through this passage together. Paul begins, and he turns to Titus, and he gives him this charge. He says, Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, look up to the first part of chapter 1 and recognize that this is the message Paul is continuing to harp on, is continuing to drive to Titus. Paul said, look, Titus, this is my charge. I'm working in verse 1 for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And now here in verse 1 of chapter 2, he calls Titus to follow in the same pattern. He says, you need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus needs to be out there. He needs to be teaching people how to take the word of God and apply it to their lives. To find every facet of everything they do and say, when you go into the workplace and your boss calls you to do this thing that is wholly immoral and inappropriate, this is how you respond. He's offering them teaching which accords, which produces, which leads to sound living and sound doctrine, sound understanding. That is the call of Titus. That's the call of the pastor that Titus has set himself up as. Now look at this. He turns first to older men. He turns first to older men. But let me paint a picture for you this morning. Some of you will know this individual, not by name because he's no one in particular, but you'll understand this type of person. He's older. He's respected. He's done a number of of great things. I mean, this, this guy is, is, is the one that, that some younger men look to and they think, man, he has been to so many places. He has done so many amazing things. In some sense, they, they want to be this guy because he is the, the pinnacle of what they think success is. But when he thinks of himself, he's tired. 
He's not involved with church anymore. One time he was a passionate deacon. He was just an avid layperson. He gave his heart. He poured out all his energies to being invested in the church. He sang in the choir, although some people didn't appreciate that. I mean, he was always at work. But now here he's retired from his job. He's struggling to find purpose. He's struggling to find his way. And all he wants to do is to return things to the way they used to be. And to that end, he's now being labeled a troublemaker. One who's never satisfied, one who's never happy, one who always walks around remembering the way things used to be. Can I tell you, sadly, that's how too many men end up. Think of the glory days. They think of the days when they used to be the kings of industry. They think of the days when people used to look to them with respect, when people used to come to them and ask them to help and for their input. But because they're so sold into doing things the way they want to do it and finding no room for compromise, people no longer want to approach them because now they see them as a jaded person who did well once but who has largely cut himself off from involvement in the lives of others. Titus offers us a corrective to that type of lifestyle. Look what he says an older man should instead look like. He says they are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. He comes to this older man, and let's just say for us, it is anyone over 50 So everybody that's in here that's 49 and below is thinking, yes, I've still got it. For a year, for a year, you've got it. He is to be sober-minded. His mind is to be crystal clear. Now, he's not talking about anything um, like dementia or Alzheimer's that, that is beyond their control, which affects their understanding. But instead, he's talking about clarity. This man, the way that he keeps his mind sober, the way that he keeps his head clear is by staying in the word. He's not living his life the way it used to be. He's not seeking to restore things to the way of his glory days, but he's keeping his mind focused and honed in on the word of God. The text tells us that this man is dignified. Now, this isn't saying that he he wears a suit and tie everywhere he goes, but it's saying more the way he lives his life, the internal qualities of his life as demonstrated in the outward manifestation of these things lead others to respect him. They lead others to respect him. This man, when he's out in the community, when he's out and engaging with people, they come up and they want his opinion because they see him as one worthy of respect. This man is dignified. He doesn't get caught in the ramblings of other people who say, let's take charge of this thing. Let's make it the way that it used to be. Let's assert some authority. Let's assert some control. Let's hold a people ransom to return it to the way we know it should be done. He's got no time for that. He's got no time for that. He is centered on the word of God. He is centered on on bringing the kingdom in the lives of everybody he comes into contact with. And because of that, he is recognized as one who is worthy of respect. Now this morning, you are likely thinking of some of the same individuals in in our church that I'm thinking of. Men that I look to. I think, I hope that by the time I get to this man's age, in this man's stage of life, that I have a fraction of the love of Jesus in my life that he has in his life. 
I hope that God is gracious and bestows on me the wisdom that he has given to some of the men in our church who are the personification of dignity, who are so worthy of respect, not that they demand it, but that others freely give it to them. He says these men should be self-controlled. They're not given to pursuing all these different, all these different things that, that come along and pursuing second and third and fourth careers, trying to restore the greatness that once was. What an empty pursuit that is. What an empty pursuit that is. Can't tell you how many men I've met with that retire and are just lost. And in these conversations with some of them, they talk about the glory days of, of how great it used to be to be a king of industry. Think of some of my family members who were great men of industry. But at retirement, didn't know what to do. So they began to chase other careers and other pursuits, trying to get a shred of what that was like, that, that high, that feeling back in their life. And they were driven and they were controlled by pride and arrogance and this thirst for respect, which isn't received in the pursuit of these things, which are ultimately empty and hollow. Now, look what this person needs to be sound in. They don't need to be financially sound, they don't need to be this person that everyone can come to and and receive money from, but this person needs to be sound in three things, in faith, love, and steadfastness. This person, this older man, as Paul writes these instructions to Timothy, is charged to be sound in faith. There is no place in the Christian walk for the retirement of the Christian. There's just simply no place for it. The Christian should always give their lives to the pursuit of becoming more and more godly. Maybe this next year for some of you, retirement is coming. So you're thinking, how are all the ways I'm going to spend my free time and the inheritance my children think they're going to get? Your children are thinking, well, you're going to be caring for my kids because I'm going to be on vacation. This person needs to be sound in faith. There's never a place for them to say, man, I have learned all I ever wanted to learn from church. I have learned all I ever needed to learn from the Bible. I have spent enough time meditating, enough time singing songs, I am simply done. The Lord used me at one point, but I am now done. You see, this person is sound in faith, and we see from the instance of this that they are always called to demonstrate this. It's in the present. It's in the present continuous, this idea that they are sound in faith today, that they will be sound in faith tomorrow, that if they continue to live for another 30 or 40 years, to the very last breath, they will continue to evidence sound faith. And that's only met out, that's only realized as much as they invest themselves in the study and application of the word of God. Now, unlike this individual we looked at earlier who is embittered against everybody who doesn't see it their ways, this person, as Paul sets it up, is to be sound in love. To be sound in love. Now, as a child, I was terrified of my grandfather. He had this big, gruff voice. I didn't see him very often. We lived in Norway. He lived in the U.S., and so I only saw him for, well, he wasn't home very often, so I probably only saw him one to two weeks out of the entire year. I was terrified of him. I remember one time he was going to offer to cut my fingernails, and in my mind, what he was offering was to cut my fingers off. 
Um, I was just terrified of him. <clears throat> I was pretty sure he had eaten two or three children. Um, there's six years between my brother and I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that I had siblings in there that he just ingested. I, I never really thought of him as a loving person. He wasn't very warm. It wasn't just very inviting. But the picture we see here is, is of an older man who is gentle, who is known for loving those around him. And he demonstrates that to those, in most cases, who are what we might consider not being worthy of love. Now look, this person is also sound in steadfastness. One of the hardest things to do is to age well. One of the easy things to do is, is, is to give up, is to say, I've had enough, I don't want to do this anymore, and is to falter, and ultimately, as we see in this, would be to fail. But if you want to age, you want to age well, you want to age according to the call of the gospel in your life, you need to do so with a sense of being sound in steadfastness and endurance. Now look at this, he switches to older women. We're not going to talk about age as it comes to this. Paul says, older women, likewise. In essence, we see that they too are to line up their lives under the charge of receiving sound doctrine from Titus. But older women, likewise, he says, they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, this first one is a really interesting descriptor that he puts up here. He says, they are to be reverent in behavior. Now, what he points at in this, in essence, is that they need to be those who demonstrate holiness in every instance of their lives. You know, the same thing could be said of a fictitious woman. Just as we looked at a fictitious man earlier, if we were to take a woman who is older, she is tired, she has poured out her life raising children, raising a husband. Some of you got that. She has poured out her life in the service of others, and now she is desiring to be served herself. And so she keeps herself. She watches her stories on television. She doesn't engage anybody else around her. Paul gives us an indication that this woman uh, nips at the bottle maybe a little bit too much. And she's not pouring out her life into anybody around her. Instead, she's just, again, ready for the end. But look what Paul continues to say about her. He says she is reverent in behavior. She is the embodiment of holiness, that when people see her, they think of Jesus. When people see her, they think of how one should act in right response to Jesus and his sacrifice and his call upon people's lives. He says this woman is not a slanderer or a slave to much wine. She doesn't run around as a busybody gossip. I mean, that's, that, you want to break that down to vernacular? That's what that is. I can remember my grandmother used to have a number of people over week to week, and uh, she had one friend in particular who never smoked at home, always smoked at my grandparents' house, and would come over and she'd say, hey, you got a curly? And that, for some reason, that was their slang term for cigarette. My grandmother would say, oh yeah, you know I got one. And so they'd sit on the back porch and they'd smoke cigarettes and they would drum down everybody in town. Did you know so-and-so? Whoo, girl, she got her hair done and it all fell out. That's a wig she's wearing now. <clears throat> And I just thought, what in the world? A wig, that's terrifying. I thought that was a man. 
And so as she goes on all these things, we see this description, this person is, is to be reverent in behavior. He says they're not to be slanders. They're not to engage in busybody gossip. And you see how these things are completely opposed to one another. How could a woman, how could a woman who is called to be the very embodiment of holiness be given to busybody gossip? She can't be. You can't be one and at the same time be the other. Instead, instead she's to be the very embodiment of holiness. She's not a slave to much, much wine. That's self-explanatory. But she is instead to teach what is good. Paul begins to turn the corner on pouring out her life into others. He begins to show us how she finds purpose in life. She is to teach what is good. Now, friends, how does she know what good is? Likely because she spent a lifetime succeeding and failing, just like anybody does over a course of their life. She's not perfect. She's recognized over a course of, of seeking to lead a holy and pleasing life to God that no one can be perfect. She sees the forgiveness of God, and now she's reached a stage in her life where she can pour out that instruction on others. Now, Paul turns to Titus, and he says, this is what they're to teach, and this is who they are to instruct. Paul pairs older women with younger women. And this is the sum and substance of what they are to teach younger women. He says they are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Paul calls on the older women and says, look, your life, for some of you, has been rough. It's been rough. But you have made it through. You finally reached this stage in life where all the things that you've done wrong, you can come to other people and say, look, don't do the same things I did. Don't do the same things I did. And what's the chief thing on that list? What is the first thing he calls them to be good at? He says, teach what is good. And then he turns in and he says, and so train young women to love their husbands. This is the, this is the sum and substance of this. In teaching what is good, they produce good, godly women. In teaching what is good and demonstrating what is good by the way they live their lives, they are producing good, godly women. First, they turn and they say, love their husbands. You say, this might be a given. Surely women would love their husbands. We think of in a day when Paul Wright, when the vast majority of marriages were arranged and there wasn't a whole lot of love bringing them together at their initial union. What an incredible call. And he writes and he says to them, love your husband. So many marriages, too many marriages, you end up with a husband and wife that don't love each other. They don't give a picture of what it is to love their spouse. Instead, they tolerate them. Maybe they appreciate them. They appreciate the sacrifices that some of their spouses have, have gone through to provide for their families. A wife might say of her husband, he is a tremendous provider. He is a great father. But she doesn't move in the realm of saying, and I love my husband. Love is something that has to be worked at daily. Loving is, love is something that has to be fought for valiantly. Love isn't something that happens automatically. And so these older women come beside these younger women and say, this is how you love your husband. This is, this is how I poured out my life in, in loving my husband. These are some things that work. 
these are some things that didn't work. But over the vast length of our marriage, this is what bonded us in love. Turning next, he says, they need to teach them how to love their children. Older women have survived the child-rearing age. Congratulations. But this is what you do with that. You find someone who's in the midst of it. You work to encourage them. You work to show them these are things that work for me and my spouse. These are ways we sent our children really to experience tales of woe. Some of you. You raised your children, your children made unwise decisions, and you mourn the decisions they make in the lives they're living today. That's the reality for some. Friend, don't sit and mourn that. Don't don't sit and and, and allow that to make you embittered, but find younger women and, and help them see where they can keep from going wrong. Continue to pray for your children that they would make wise decisions, but find young women whose lives you can pour into and you can encourage them. Paul gives us this beautiful picture of older women sharing with younger the wisdom that they have learned and gained over a life of seeking to please God. And some of that wisdom is, is learned by failure. Paul continues to employ this idea of self-control as he starts verse 5. He says they need to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. They need to make sure they're in control of their own lives. They're not pulled back and forth by various passions. He said they need to be pure. They need to make sure they're pursuing purity in their hearts and those things that they observe on television, those books they give their lives to, the friends they keep, the friendships that they make. We're in a society that does not value purity in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't value purity. You're not going to get an award for seeking to be pure. Society is not going to come alongside you and say, congratulations, you're so pure. This is something God values and something that we too should value. Purity is something that must be fought hard to preserve, to gain back, and to maintain. Now he comes to what for us is probably going to be somewhat of a rub for a lot of people. He says they need to be working at home. This is how the ESV renders it. Other translations say they need to be busy in the home. And for anyone who is a homemaker, you say busy at the home. They must have been there on Monday. It's just a given. But what does that mean? Is Paul writing here, and, and see what we see in this, in this understanding is one word in the Greek, and it splits us into two camps, largely, on both poles. On the one camp, we see those who say, everything was set straight in redemption. God redeemed all gender roles. There's no distinction. Women can do whatever they want. Men can do whatever they want. There is no functional distinction for a man or a woman. And that's the way they go with it. We see it on the other side, and the, the, the most conservative way to understand this is to say a wife's place is in the home. She should never work outside the home. should never do it. And that's how they interpret this. What I want to show you this morning, Scripture interprets Scripture. Amen? 
When we come across a passage like this and we want to understand it and you recognize it is one word, Paul's not writing a treaty on gender distinctives and gender roles. He wasn't looking into the 21st century and saying, okay, okay, this is a situation. We've got two college graduates, no children. She can work outside the home for three and a half years. At that point, they need to start having children and maybe you know, infertility becomes an issue for them. At that point, they go to a doctor and then, okay, uh, carry the one, three, five, five years, then she needs to be in the home. She needs to have mastered chicken pot pie and duck larange by year seven. That's just not what he sets out to do. Now flip over to Proverbs 31. Flip over to Proverbs 31. Let's, let's look at this. Proverbs 31, what we see here are the words and instruction of a mother who comes to her son and says, this is what you want in a wife. This is what you want in someone who would be a mother to your children. Skip down to verse 10. Ask the question, says, an excellent wife, who can find? It's difficult to find a worthy woman. She is far more precious than jewels. Friend, don't set your heart on money. Set your heart on finding a woman who is far more valuable than that. Know that this text moves to the domestic first. It says, she does him good, speaking of her husband and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and the portions of her maidens. She is working diligently in the home. But look at 16. She considers a field and buys it, and with the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. What you see in Proverbs 31 is a woman who is, to use the expression, a renaissance woman. She diligently pursues the Lord outside the home and inside the home. You and your spouse come together and you're, you're praying through and trying to figure out whether you work outside the home, whether you work inside the home, how that looks. This is, this is kind of where I've come to and as I seek to understand this passage. If your reason, if your wife and the reason your husband has you working outside the home is because your level of intake and consumption is such that you have to, that your lifestyle demands it, and because of that, you're neglecting ministry in the home. I think this passage speaks to that. If you're working outside the home because you guys like to take extravagant vacations, because your, your level of debt and consumption is such that you're not able, hear me, not able to minister inside the home. You're not able to love your husband well. You're not able to love your children well. You're not able to give yourself to service in the home. I think this passage has issues now, it's not seeking to answer every phase and way of life that you and your husband come to, and there's a time and a season for almost everything. But these are difficult decisions and not givens. We should make decisions based upon what the weight of the Bible says, not the overarching trends of our culture. Few women, if you were to give up a lucrative career or a promising career or one that brings you fulfillment, and you were to tell your coworkers, I'm choosing to stay in the home. I'm going to give myself to raising my children, to loving my husband well, and to, to raising a godly family. A few of your coworkers would look at you and say, that is amazing. Instead, they would probably look at you and say, that is the most archaic, chauvinistic. I need to call your husband. He is just an out-and-out -out jerk. 
I can't believe he would make you do such a thing. That, that is likely the response that you get. Decisions need to be made from the center of the text. And I'm not going to tell you where you need to come down on this, how you need to interpret this, but you do have to wrestle with it. You can disagree with me, but you do have to wrestle with the text. He says that they need to be busy or working at home. They need to be kind. Now, for some mothers, this is more difficult than others, especially after a trip to Walmart with children. It is difficult to be kind, but they need to be kind. It needs to be the overarching manifestation visited in your life. You need to be kind. And the way that you get this is by older women giving you tricks of the trade. They say, this is how I managed to cope when I felt like life was coming apart. We had people coming over to the house. I've got that lowly ingrate in there watching television. He won't help me. This is how I managed to maintain sanity. Some of you older women are nodding your heads a little bit too vigorously. He said they need to be kind. He comes to and he says they need to be submissive to their own husbands. Recognize Paul's particularness in this, he says, to their own husbands. He's not calling them to be submissive to every man who would seek to come along and instruct them in what to do. He's not calling them to submit in the midst of a dating relationship. If you're dating, you are not married. You don't submit to your boyfriend. You don't submit to your fiance. That is not the call. You have not come together in this way. Ephesians 5 does not hold for you. This does not hold for you. I can't tell you how many college students that I met that, that they were, I'm submitting to my, to my boyfriend. I say, whoa, are you engaged? No, but we're, strong, we're talking really strongly about getting engaged sometime in the next two to three years. I'm like, you are. So you, you submit to him. No, no. There's no place for that. There's no, there's no biblical argument for that. That is a misappropriation of submission and authority. There's no place for that in a dating relationship. But he does write and he says they need to be submissive to their own husbands. If we flip over to Ephesians 5, Paul continues this discussion, this idea of what it is to submit. And he says in Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. How do you do it? You do it willingly. This is not a picture of a husband coming to his wife and saying, you need to submit. This is a picture of a wife dedicating herself to the Lord, struggling with what this means, what this looks like, and choosing of her own volition to submit. She is submitting herself. No one is forcing her to submit. But look what Paul goes on to say about that husband. Verse 25, he says, of of chapter 5 in Ephesians, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, it is not your job to force your wife to submit. If in the midst of argument, you look at her and say, well, you just need to submit. Husbands, you just need to ask God to forgive you. You've completely missed the picture. And you certainly aren't manifesting the type of love that Paul demonstrates and writes about in Ephesians 5.25 when he says, husbands, love your wives to what intensity and to what end? To the point and end that you would die for her. That is the intensity that husbands need to be battling for the love and affection of their wives 
the intensity and devotion that would see them surrendering their own lives. Now look, this is difficult. This is, these are difficult things that, that we're called to do, that older men, that older women, that younger women are called to do. But there is a greater purpose in all of this. And it's so much more than, than younger women having the most extravagant birthday party they could ever have for their children and taking Facebook photos and selfies with happy kids and, and posting things on Instagram so that people see that and say, look how happy they are. Look at all the cool trips they take. Look at this family. Oh, I want to be like that family. That's pretty shallow. That's pretty unfulfilling. And you're only going to be successful until somebody else takes a picture of something even better or something more recent. That's not the chief end of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God. And look at this. We all have a chance to do it, living out the designations that God gives us. He says, these are the reasons that these should all do these things. And it is so that the word of God may not be reviled. Alternately translated as slandered, spoken ill of. The reason that that God through Paul calls us to demonstrate these things in our lives is so that lost people see us. And they have no room to say, look at the mess in their household. Man, if being a Christian produces this mess in my household, I have no room for Christianity. Do you see the way she talks about her husband? You know she goes to that church over there. If being a Christian leads me to talk about my husband that way, I've got no room for being a Christian. If being a Being a Christian leads me to speak of my wife that way. I've got no room to be a Christian. Some of us undo the power of the gospel in our lives by the way that we speak of our spouses, by the way that we work in our households. Some of the older men, potentially in this church, and older women in this church, you undo the flavor of the gospel in your lives and its impact on those that you encounter because of your bitterness and really just because you're a crabby person. I don't know how else to break that down for you. Does that make sense? Some of you have been crabby for a very long time. Now, if you're in here and you've got a smile on your face and you're saying, I don't think I'm crabby, you probably are. But when you look to the side of you and you see that pained expression on the person beside you, they probably are. Either that or they need a bathroom break. So let's keep moving. Paul writes, and and this is really interesting, he offers a short verse to younger men who are in dire need of a tremendous amount of help. But his word to them is, urge younger men, he offers this imperative command, he says, to be self-controlled. And we get the picture that young men are anything but self-controlled. They want success, they want all of these things, and they want it right now. So he writes to them, he says, be self-controlled. In essence, he says, look at the older man. Look that he's made it through these things in life. Seek to emulate him. Seek to model your life after him. Be self-controlled. Don't be driven by your passions. Don't be driven by those things other than the gospel. So he turns to Titus, and he sets Titus up in some sense as an example for all. But because of the proximity to the younger men, we're able to tell that it is likely, especially them. To Titus, he turns, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He said, look, everything you do, you need to show people how to walk as a Christian. 
That is a tremendous burden. Titus is going to encounter difficult people in Crete. Paul has already told us in chapter 1 and verse 12 that all Cretans are liars, that they are lazy gluttons and evil beasts, right? And every time Titus goes out and he encounters these people, he is supposed to demonstrate the gospel in the way that he lives, being a model of good works. Turning to his teaching, he says, In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Only way Titus can do this is by upholding the word of God, applying it to the lives of his people, and making sure that his life is lived in accordance with the thing he calls other people to do. And being honest when he fails and falls short, because you better believe he will. Now look, he gets into the same idea of the so what and why. He says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We recognize that those who would seek to be pastors, those who would seek to be elders, they shoulder an unbelievable burden because Paul writes it in the plural here. And he says, look, if somebody sees a pastor not living in accordance with the gospel or the things they believe that Christians should have in their lives, it gives an opponent a foothold to slander Christ. It gives an opponent a foothold to slander the church. And there is no place for that. Now, interestingly, he turns in this last section, and, and I've met all of you, I know most of you by name, and none of you in here, to my knowledge, are slaves. Um, but in this last section, what we see it is addressed to a category of people that we don't have in our community, that we don't have in our church. But it applies beautifully to us. Paul writes to the most marginalized, the most at-risk the, the, most, the people in the most difficult station of life. Now, slavery in the Roman era was decidedly different than the slavery in our own country, but it was still one person owning another, directing the affairs of their life. And he comes to them. He comes to these people who are marginalized. He comes to these people who live their lives according to the dictates of someone else. And it's to these people who have the roughest lot of all that he gives them those challenging command. He says they are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. That whenever your master calls you to do something, in as much as it's not sinful to do it, you submit your life and you obey. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. They're not talking back. They're not pilfering, so they're not stealing from their master, but instead they are showing all good faith. They are demonstrating the gospel in the way they live their life. Now look at this most difficult group. It's hard to be an old man, hard to be an old woman, difficult to be a young woman. Young men, you just need to control yourselves. But he comes to this group, and this is what he says to them. In everything you do, verse 10, so that, not argumentative, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He comes to the most marginalized, comes to the most oppressed. He comes to the group that, that if anybody has reason to complain and to argue, it is this group. And this is what he says to them. Life's going to be terrible. Things are going to be difficult for you. But you need to live your life in such a way is that you are wearing, you are wearing the doctrine, the teaching, 
the gospel is a clothing. Now that works for everybody. That works for everybody. So we recognize when we are engaged in tremendous difficulty, we are to be adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. And so for the older man who is struggling in life, he's struggling to find his place, he's struggling to find his purpose, the call to you is still to live your life in such a way that you adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, that people look at you and they see Christ. When he turns to the older women and they're struggling to find this place, the house is empty, they're not sure of where to pour out their energies, where to pour out their focuses, he turns to them and he says, in the, in the face, in spite of all these difficulties, you wear, you clothe yourself with the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. Everyone that sees you sees him in the way that you live and face difficulty. He turns to the young women and he says, this is a tremendously difficult time in life for you. So many demands are being pulled on you. You have a husband who's intolerable. You have children who are insatiable. You have all of these things pushing and making demands on you. You are to adorn yourself with the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. You are to adorn yourself with the doctrine of God our Savior. He turns to to these young men who are so driven by passion, who are given to pursuing those things that do not satisfy. And he says, leave them all. Be self-controlled. Surrender your life to Jesus and adorn yourself with the doctrine of God, our Savior. This is how church works well. We find older men who will pour into younger men. We find younger men who could be self-controlled, who would surrender their pride and and would, would know enough to say, I do not know the answer to everything. And would come to some of these older men and say, please teach me. Teach me the things that God has instructed you over a lifetime of of learning, of succeeding, and of failing. And we find older men who would passionately seek out these younger men so that they could help them to grow in godliness. One of the ways we succeed at Ridgecrest is by the older women pouring into the younger. This week, in the Appleseeds program that came to our house and to other homes across this community, we saw this demonstrated beautifully. I would love to say that I got with Elaine and with Siri and some of these other women months ago and said, you know, around about the 3rd of August, I'm going to be in this series in Titus. And so it would be great if you would bring along some younger girls and, you know, just pour your lives into them and teach them some godly concepts and, and principles. I didn't do that. I didn't go, come along and ask them to start this program. But I tell you this. I'm thankful every day that they do. I'm thankful every day that we have godly women in this church who are pouring their lives into younger women already through this program and others. Fellas, women get it. They absolutely get it. They're succeeding. They're setting the pace. They're raising the bar. And we're failing. I'm not telling you you need to outdo your wife. I'm telling you she's outdoing you. You want to be a spiritual leader in your home? You want to be like what Paul calls these older men to be? Stop pursuing things that don't satisfy. Start living your life in such a way as to please God. This is the pattern to follow.
older men. You're not done. Find younger men and pour your lives into them. Teenagers, younger men, you don't have it all figured out. You don't have all the answers. You need the wisdom of these older men. We need to get these groups together so that we can be a healthy church and reflection of the gospel which transcends age and color. It transcends socioeconomics. It transcends all of these things and brings the most diverse, discombobulated group of people together so that we become the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.